In the construction business and can't find what you need, Quality Supply and Tool has served Hoosiers for over a quarter of a century. Tom Hawk is the branch manager of the Indy location on South Harding Street. We've always been big on keeping our shelves fully stocked of inventory of industrial-grade tools, concrete, masonry products, as well as the necessary accessories to help get the job done. You don't have it, you can't sell it. Our experience allows us to help with getting the pros as well as the weekend pro taken care of. Quality Supply and Tool also has locations in Bloomington, Lafayette, and Jeffersonville to help you think outside the box. Store. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson. Brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Funny how things work out. Sitting for the entire afternoon at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at about 2.15 today. And I'm sure Kevin talked about this. They actually were going getting ready to do install laps and get practice underway Literally, when they called one minute remaining before the engines would fire up, all of a sudden, Alan Bestwick got on the public address system and said, uh-oh, we're under caution again for moisture on the track, and it never relinquished. And so as a result, day one of the practice for the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race was canceled, and it probably most affected R.C. Enerson who is a rookie, technically speaking, even though it is not his first venture to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway to attempt to qualify for the 500. He has yet to run in the 500, so still listed as a rookie. He will have to still undergo the rookie orientation program. He was set to do that this morning. That, of course, was something that could not be done because of the track. So that will take place, his attempt to do so and complete that at 10.15 tomorrow morning and then practice underway at noon until 6 o'clock tomorrow all day. And I think it's going to be a beautiful day tomorrow to be able to get out and enjoy practice and hear the cars, the sights, the sounds of which we are so familiar at the world's greatest race course. Good evening to you on a Tuesday. My name is Jake Quarry. Mike Thompson here as well. Eddie Garrison, Sam Fritz, Todd Meyer among those who are behind the scenes bringing you Beyond the Bricks, our look at Really, the easiest way to say it is this show is all about the audio that Mike Thompson has in his uh, – and credit to Mike because he was supposed to – I don't know, Mike, was it today or tomorrow when the producers from the TV show Hoarders were coming over and you delayed that in order to be able to continue to move through the audio for us, right? Uh, that was actually yesterday during the, the, big, the big move. <laughs> That's right. But listen, your audio collection, I had someone come up to me today – uh, out at the track and just say, man, hearing, you know, the audio from the old broadcasts from, you know, the mutual broadcasts all the way back to the early years of Sid Collins, it really is fabulous stuff. And uh, again, thank you for working so hard at not only pulling up the audio, but putting together rundowns for us to be able to let people enjoy what we hear. And tonight, I think we've done a show similar to this in years past, probably on the twos since last year was 2022. But it is interesting, Mike, that in certain numbers if you look at the race that ended each year on that number in the decade for example 71 81 91 01 etc um, oftentimes there are 
patterns or things that you look at over the course of the race and say, man, some really interesting stuff happened in those particular years. And so tonight, because it's 2023, you decided to pick my favorite number, Mike. Your favorite number is three? I didn't know that. That's that's cool. It is. Um, my favorite number is awesome. three. Oh, because of turn three or, or a different reason? You know, I never thought of that, actually. But um, truth be told, I am the third child. My birthday is on the third. It is in the ninth month, which nine divided by three is three. And the first Indianapolis 500 I attended, I saw Bobby Unser's third win. Um, and he did and so in car number three. Car number three. Yeah, so perfect. So that works and out Jay nicely. Edwards is my all-time favorite IU basketball player, but that's not as applicable in May. All right. Well, I... I uh, I thought about this because we, we did a special for WIBC again this year um, talking about the decades. So last year it was tribute to the twos, and this year we called the decades by three. And I was thinking about it today, and I'll be candid with you. I've been moving for the last three or four days, and I was thinking, you know, what are we going to do tonight for the show? And I hadn't had a chance to talk to you because you were busy doing, you know, your different responsibilities that you have out at the track and things like that. And I was thinking, I better come up with a show for tonight. And so I thought, you know what, let's talk about the – the decades by three because there are so many different interesting things that happen every decade so i thought uh, let's pull some audio for that tonight well it's going to be fun to do so and we will begin as a matter of fact 60 years ago this year in 1963 that was the 47th indianapolis 500 and i was just having a conversation earlier today about juan pablo montoya and his first year in the indianapolis 500 and how dominating his performance was in leading 167 laps that was not the first time that someone had led 167 laps in the Indianapolis 500 en route to a win, because that's exactly what Parnelli Jones did in 1963. And it is so interesting, Mike, as we're getting ready to take a look back at Parnelli's win in that year, and the reality is he is one of those drivers that he was destined to get a win at Indianapolis, but in terms of the solo winners, winners that only won one time, Parnelli Jones has as much a case as anybody for could have been a multiple winner and an absolutely dominant driver whose statistics would bear the fact that you would think he would have been on the Borg Warner Trophy more than once. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, when you think about the fact that he, you know, he was such a dominant, dominant driver there. I mean, he's in the top 10 all time in laps led. And as you said, he only won one time. And what's we talked about this a couple shows ago, a few shows ago. Now the fact is that there are single winners, you know, one-time winners as we call them, uh, who are three of the top four in all-time lap leaders. Uh, but Parnelli, you know, he's he's still eighth, I think, in in all-time laps led, and you know, he was so dominant in the in the sixties. And should have won so many different times. I mean, in weird circumstances, took him out of, of winning. You know, I mean, obviously should have won in 67 with the turban. Um, you know, had another situation with breaks. And and even Roger Ward said, you know, hey, Parnelli was really the moral winner of 62. I won the race. But Parnelli had, you know, did the best job and had the best car and probably should have won. A year after he had broken the 150-mile-an-hour barrier, Parnelli Jones again sat on pole, keeping in mind Mike's numbers there in terms of laps led for Parnelli Jones, and he did that in just seven Indianapolis 500 appearances. He had what was thought to be the dominant car in 1963. He was the pole sitter. Part of those 167 laps were early on when he was leading, and then all of a sudden there was an issue for the Willard Batteries Special in 1963. 
Freddie had some comments about Parnelli Jones. I'm a little worried about the looks of the tail on Parnelli Jones because the oil tank is mounted between the wheels on the left side of that machine, a big taper teardrop tank. Now there's a little bit of oil seeping out of the body panel of the tail on his car and I noticed it's uh, progressively been getting a little bit worse. However, this can be oil seepage out of the uh, out of the gearbox as well. I'm just hoping that it isn't anything serious. It hasn't uh, deterred him as far as speed is concerned, but it's something that could be occurring that we're not too sure of. That, of course, the 1963 Indianapolis 500 on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway radio network. Sid Collins was the first voice you heard in that clip. Reality is, Mike, that once that issue began to arise, and we're talking about the fact that Parnelli, and coincidentally enough, Parnelli Jones, of course, in the ceremonial laps before the Indianapolis 500 a couple of years ago, got to take out the Marmon Wasp. And the one issue was the Marmon Wasp dropped a little bit of oil. It's understandable. It's over 100 years old. Onto the racetrack. And in 1963, leaking oil, Mike, probably should have been even more detrimental to Parnelli Jones than it was. That's correct. I mean, we we all love Parnelli. I mean, Parnelli is one of my favorite all-time people. He's he's always been so good to me. I can I mean, I consider him a friend, which is a real honor. Um the fact of the matter is in the driver's meeting at the 1963 Indianapolis 500, the rule was explained, cars leaking oil will be black flagged. There was no gray area about it. That was the rule. And there wasn't, you, you didn't get a chance to debate about it. You didn't get a chance to, to appeal. Cars leaking oil will be black flagged. That's what the, the, the chief steward said in the driver's meeting. So Parnelli starts having this problem with leaking oil and it starts getting worse. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, smoke coming out, a little bit of smoke being seen. And, you know, his, his car is visibly leaking oil. And as, as Freddie says in the booth, you can see, uh, you know, that there's, you know, staining going on on the car, visible staining. And so, you know, they're expecting, uh, you know, team Lotus is expecting that Parnelli is going to get black flagged and, uh, you know, Eddie Sachs ended up crashing and Eddie Sachs believed, you know, till the, to the day he passed away that he he spun in the oil that was put down by Parnelli. And then there was later on, very late in the race, Roger McCluskey was right behind Parnelli and he spun out with uh, on the last lap, I believe it was, um, and, and was right behind Parnelli and believed that there was still oil coming out of Parnelli's car. It ended up being that Harlan Fangler did not ever black flag Parnelli, obviously. And there was a lot of controversy about that. I mean, Eddie Sachs and Parnelli Jones got into an argument the next day and, and Parnelli laid him out with a fist, you know, I mean, hit him at the, at this, uh, you know, little meeting they had. So it was a very highly controversial decision to not black flag. IMS historian, emeritus Donald Davidson on the situation of that oil leak, the rules, and Parnelli Jones in 1963. If it was an ongoing problem, it would have been different. But the fact is that it was a split, a, a little spider crack, apparently right where the boat went in. I think they had two bolts, I think, on a... I think it's two bolts on the externally mounted tank. So uh, late in the race, it, it starts to... Um, dumping oil, I think, is a little strong. Uh, it was vaporized. 
And uh, I don't know how long it lasted. I mean, it was a few minutes, but it, it but it got to the point where it stopped. Uh, while the, the instead of arbitrarily black flagging right off, there was some consideration given to it, which I think, I I think was was. Um, you know, I, do I want to be the guy out there deciding whether to throw the black flag? No, and I don't know that anybody. I'll tell you what. <laughs> I'll make this statement and then, uh, you know, get back on the answer. I think anybody that uh, is on Facebook or, you know, blogs and all this kind of stuff that, that makes these arbitrary comments about what should or should not have happened, at the next race, we thought, all right, we'll give you the flags. Here's the black flag. You decide what you're going to do, and and uh, they'll shy away every time. I always have this conversation with Donald about it. It would have been an absolute travesty to have Parnelli Jones not have won the Indianapolis 500 because of what ended up happening with the, the turban and things like that. I mean, he he should have won that race. I mean, it would have been terrible to black flag Parnelli and then have him not be an Indianapolis 500 winner. That being said, the rule is the rule. Either it's a rule or it isn't. And so if, if it's going to be a rule and it's going to be said that in the driver's meeting, to me, it's either a rule or it isn't. So that's a discussion point that Donald and I always have about the 1963 race. If it's said in the driver's meeting that it's a rule, then it's a rule. And Pardelli Jones, of course, had led 147 laps in the previous two Indianapolis 500-mile races. That was before leading 167 of them in 1963. So certainly you could say that he was due – I don't think necessarily that that would have gone into that decision, but maybe it did. We'll perhaps never know. But nonetheless, after those two years of knocking on the door and then kicking on the door, finally in 1963, Parnelli Jones busted it down. Okay, Bernie, we've got it. Here comes Parnelli Jones. He's fast as he gets around me here. By Roger McCluskey. McCluskey spins there in the corner. Hold it. We've got one car going around him. He's sideways. The same spot that Eddie Sachs was. McCluskey right there. He's okay. He's sitting in his car. The cars are coming around him. We'll follow. See if it's all right. They're all going on the inside. McCluskey halfway through the turn. Sideways. The exact same spot where Eddie Sachs was just a few minutes ago. Now they're running under the yellow flag. Jones went around us a moment ago. Him the and there's the checkered flag for Parnelli Jones, the winner of the 1963 500-mile race. Parnelli Jones from Torrance, California, wins the 500. So that is how it sounded. And Parnelli Jones, who, by the way, still has, as I understand it, one of the bonus checks that he got sitting in the same bank account where he deposited it back in 1963, got a winner's watch for that as well and, of course, became a dealer of Firestone Tires throughout the West Coast. Parnelli Jones, one of the more popular drivers and, of course, still living today, the winner in 1963. Gordon Johncock won, of course, the race in 1982 that we've talked about before on this program, winning over Rick Mears. And while certainly one could look back historically and wonder what could have happened had Mears won that race and we'd have our first five-time winner in Indy 500 history, it's almost as though the racing gods were looking out for Gordon Johncock because for somebody that was as fast and competitive and tenacious as Gordon Johncock in his racing career, it almost seemed fitting that he would get a victory to go alongside his 1973 win. Because the reality is, Mike, just as we're going to do tonight, it was unfortunate for Gordon Johncock because I think even Johncock would tell you that 73 win was a hard one to not only celebrate – but really to even hold on to and for Gordon Johncock to look back on, it is 
so fitting that he is able to get a second Indianapolis 500 win so that his legacy is not simply being a solo winner of what probably was the darkest Indy 500 in history. I agree. Uh, I just spoke to Gordy a couple weeks ago for the special we did on 1973 for WIBC, and, and he said he was really proud of winning in 82 because, you know, it, it was some validation as well. But he also feels that he was the best car in 1973. He said, I deserve to win. I led the most laps. And, you know, I was the dominant car. And when they called the race, it wasn't like a fluke. It, I didn't just happen to be leading and I was running 15th all day. So he felt like he earned the 73 win. But he definitely felt like, uh, you know, 82 winning that duel with Rick Mears was a real validation victory. Interesting that in 1963, Parnelli Jones, who had broken the 150-mile-an-hour barrier, would win the race. Because 20 years later, in 1983, it was the gas man, Tom Sneva, who himself had broken a speed barrier, and a pretty big one. Five years earlier, he became the first man to break the 200-mile-an-hour mark. He got 200 silver dollars and a helmet from Tony Holman for that. And then in 1983... He had, once again, a very fast car. Started in the fourth position, as a matter of fact. Interestingly enough, Allinger Jr. was in his first Indianapolis 500 as a rookie. And Little Al, as he was known back then in the Coors Light Silver Bullet, once commented that the 1983 race, believe it or not, was the first time that he was on the grounds on race day. Because for all of the years that his father raced at Indianapolis... There was always a conflict, notably one of school, for Allenser Jr. And while he had been there for each and every May to watch his dad and his uncle race, it was not until 1983 that he was actually there on race day itself. And there he was, Allenser Jr. As a matter of fact, he started in the fifth position, was running up towards the front when an interesting thing happened late in the race. And Mike, I think one of the storylines that perhaps even, and this is what makes it so fabulous, one of the great storylines of the 1983 race was Al Unser sitting there, and he's in the lead. Tom Sneva's running second, and there was one car between the two of them, and that car was Al Unser Jr. So little Al is there basically running interference for his father and trying to hold off Tom Sneva. The two things about it that are so great, Mike, and you tell me if you agree or disagree, but the first being the natural storyline of father and son – and the other being that as the years go by, it becomes an even bigger and bigger story. Literally, with each passing year, 20 more laps are added on to how long Al Hunter Jr. was able to hold off Tom Sneva. But it was certainly a storyline within that race. Definitely agree with you on on the fact that, look, it's father and son. It's rookie Al Hunter Jr. He's making his first start. So, you know, a fresh face, you know, future star. But I, I always have thought of what Al Jr. did more of at the time, I don't know if you remember these, Jake, but they had the the uh, the slot cars, the TCR, you know, the jam car sets. So you'd have one car that was kind of there just kind of, you know, it was there to keep you from getting around. It was, you know, not really blocking, but sort of blocking. And that's kind of what we'll hear from Big Al in a little bit as well. Just uh, it kind of always remind me what little Al did was was kind of the TCR jam car set. Closing in on the final 10 laps of the race, Al Unser in the lead, Tom Sneva in second, little Al running between them. Two or three times we've seen Little Al slam the door on Tom Sneva and keep him from catching his dad. I don't know whether Little Al's doing it intentionally or not, but he's doing a great job of blocking. Mike got a chance to sit down with Al Unser Jr. and ask him about exactly that situation. 
and just so happened that that um, at the end of the race, I was in a position that uh, that I could try to try and help my father win his fourth Indy 500. And uh, but Tom Sneva was just a little bit too fast, and 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 Dad was a little too slow. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, for the first time, for a father son to compete against each other in the in the history of the 500 uh, was a great honor and 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 we were truly blessed about it al unser by the way would get that fourth win of course in 1987 one of the trivia questions that we've mentioned on beyond the bricks before when al unser senior won his first three indianapolis 500s he was simply al unser because al unser jr was not yet in the circuit in terms as a racer but in 1987 when al unser senior won his fourth indianapolis 500 that's how his name was inscribed on the Borg Warner Trophy, as to differentiate from Al Unser Jr., who was also in the starting field. As a result, Al Unser is one of two men to have his name on the Borg Warner Trophy in multiple ways. He is listed as Al Unser Sr. in the fourth, Al Unser in the first three. The only other driver that can make that claim, Juan Montoya was strictly Juan Montoya in 2000. But by the time he won it again in 2016, he had added Pablo, thus Juan Pablo Montoya, the name on the trophy. But back to Al Sr., his thoughts on his son, little Al, running that interference for him towards the end of that 83 race. That year, there's another year, you know, I should have been able to win. I should have won the race. But we were scrubbing the front end, uh, pushing the front end. Uh, the late stages of the of the race that year, and, and uh, when Al and I got together at the last few laps, the last twenty five or thirty laps, and Sneva came up, and and uh, he was Al was not blocking for me. Al was trying to use the air. Al was a rookie, and he didn't know how to block. He'd never done anything like that in his racing career. And in those days, you just didn't do it. And it, it was the press that after the race, when when uh, the press asked uh, Sneva, says, was Al Jr. blocking? Yeah, yeah, he was. Well, he wasn't. And it always kind of irritated me. I mean, if you look at the films, you can see that Al was not blocking him. He was using the air, you know, on Sneva, but he didn't block him. Always, and I can appreciate that, a father's explanation, if you will, of his son. In the end, though, it was Tom Sneva in the Texaco Star that took home the 67th Indianapolis 500-mile race. The Texaco Star, Tom Sneva screams for the line, the double checkered flag, and Tom Sneva has won the Indianapolis 500, his first victory ever at Indianapolis. And Mike, just like in 1963, and in 1973, even though that was a precursor for it, pretty fitting that a guy in Tom Sneva won the race because he had left his footprint, of course, in multiple areas around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So only fitting for a driver of his talent with his contribution to his era that his name would be immortalized on that trophy. Definitely. Uh, you know, Tom Sneva should have won, uh, you know, more than one, I think, as well, because he was so good at Indianapolis. But uh, good to see Tom Sneva. And I, I, I also have to give a shout out how good 
and you know, I think you can really appreciate this, Jake, because of what you do and how good you are. But how good was Larry Henry on that call of Little Al with the blocking, quote unquote, and that last call there by Paul Page with the Texaco star? You know, what I mean, it's just you know, Paul Page had such a way with words, and Larry Henry so good as well in the turns. I mean, just. What an incredible crew. I have always felt that those guys were the golden era of the IMS radio network, and um, simply to be able to do that same job is an honor, but it doesn't mean that I do it to the ability those guys did, because I totally agree. They were the gold standard uh, to which we all strive today. So Tom Steva wins in 1983. Continuing the years of the threes, 93 was an awful, awful big one. Awfully, awfully big one. And it involved champions of the world that brought even more eyeballs to the world's greatest race course. We'll explain on this Tuesday edition when we return to Beyond the Bricks. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. This is Beyond the Bricks, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. station wagon 1973 wibc they are taking us back through a window of time tonight on beyond the bricks as we take a look back at the indianapolis 500s ending in the year in three uh mike i think it's best we just move along from that jingle right (laughs) that jingle was tremendous it's like they hired like vangelis like 10 years before chariots of fire I literally, I was waiting for Richard Dawson to come out and tell me we were starting a game show. Um, 1993, this was a year that had some serious long-term implications, and perhaps some may not realize this, but when Tony George was first meeting with the France family to talk about eventually running the Brickyard 400 at Indianapolis and finalizing those plans, I should say, to bring NASCAR to the world's greatest race course, when the France family came in to meet with Tony George, they were overtaken by the number of international media that also had landed upon the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And the reason that that international media was there 
was because at the same time there was a tire test taking place. And it involved a driver from Formula One by the name of Nigel Mansell. And Nigel Mansell was, of course, the Formula One world champion from Britain. And not only was he a reigning world champion, but he decided that he was going to go ahead and try his hand at the Indianapolis 500. Mike, for those that were not around or those that are unfamiliar with the situation, we got a taste of it perhaps with Fernando Alonso a few years ago, but I think you could even make the argument that Nigel Mansell at the time that he came here was even more so at the apex of his stardom when he came to Indianapolis. And I don't think that it is possible for us to overstate the buzz that was created by Nigel Mansell trying his hand at the Indianapolis 500 in 1993. I agree. There's nothing close. I mean, as as much as it was a big deal when Fernando Alonso was here, and, and rightfully so, but it's nothing close to what Nigel Mansell was. I mean, I covered that era with, uh, with Mansell being here uh, for television when I worked at uh, WTOL in Toledo. And I mean, it was just so big. And there were so many people with Mansell T-shirts and Union Jack flags. And uh, I had the opportunity to meet Peter Windsor and, and talk to him. And he had come over and was working on uh, doing some stuff with Nigel, you know, from from overseas. And it, it was just huge. I mean, it's one of those things that it's hard to it's hard to really tell people unless you lived Mansell mania. Uh, there's just nothing that kind of compares to Mansell mania. Nigel Mansell came here and started, and again. He was driving, of course, as a rookie and that Texco Haviland Kmart special. He was teammates, and this alone you can imagine just the overall buzz of the fact that he was teammates with Mario Andretti. And we're talking about running for one of the biggest teams in IndyCar at the time. Mansell, with all of the fanfare, all of the hype, all of the hub, lived up to it. He started in the eighth position. He ran up front all day. And then late in the race... Lynn St. James had an issue where her car lost power. Nigel Mansell was leading the race and was coming down. And what happened is something that we still talk about. But before we get to that, let's hear from the aforementioned Donald Davidson on the overall hype and buzz of Nigel Mansell coming here in 1993. I've never seen anything like that. That was absolutely huge. And, uh, you know, was he a rookie? Well, golly, he was the world champion. <laughs> so um, w- w- was fairly uh, w- was fairly familiar with rear engine cars and so on and so forth. So Mansell was leading the race on lap 184 when it was time for a restart. And just behind him, another guy that knew a little something about world championships, Emerson Fittipaldi. And also behind him, a guy that knew about winning at Indianapolis, R.A. Leyendijk. The green flag fell for the restart. And the green flag is out. We are back to racing. And Emerson Fittipaldi makes a move on Nigel Mansell. He's got him going into one, but Leyendijk is also right there. Oh, they went side by side, and Mansell fell all the way back to third place. Gary, we got him coming right at you. As they work through turn two, that may be the inexperience on restarts on the oval for Nigel Mansell. Right now, he is falling to third place as they work up the backstretch. Mike, I thought one of the funnier things that I've seen in quite some time on social media, funny is maybe the wrong word, creative. Nigel Mansell's car was on display at the Indianapolis International Airport about two years ago. You know, they have the different race cars on display, in particular in the month of May. And I think it was coming back from perhaps Long Beach in April. 
Ari Leyendijk, who still works for the series and is traveling with it, happened to be going through the airport and saw Nigel Mansell's car sitting there on display for those travelers that are able to pass by. And he snapped a photo of him standing just in front of it. And he tweeted out with the caption, I just passed Mansell again. I thought it was fantastic because it was so fitting. Mansell had an era about him of supreme confidence, no question about it. And I think there were a lot of people that kind of relished in seeing him get passed, not just by Fittipaldi, but Leyendijk, who went to an extra groove on the outside as well. By the time it was all said and done, it was Emerson Fittipaldi himself, a Formula One world champion, that took the checkered flag at Indianapolis. Emerson Fittipaldi, he's coming through four. He's smooth as glass. He heads to the start-finish line, the checkered flag. Here to call Bob Jenkins. Emerson Fittipaldi takes the checkered flag and wins the 77th running of the Indianapolis 500. And he might have been smooth as glass, Mike, but the reality is when he was handed a glass bottle afterwards, that's when Emerson Fittipaldi really put himself into the memory lore at Indianapolis. That's when all heck broke loose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's uh, there's still people who are so mad about this to this day. I mean, I've honestly, you know, we know how important the traditions are. We know how special certain traditions are at Indianapolis at, for the 500 at, at the Speedway. But I still am amazed how much people are still mad at Emerson Fittipaldi so many years later, the fact that Emerson Fittipaldi did not drink the milk. And what what boggles my mind is he's not the first person who refused the milk. I mean, Bobby Unser refused the milk in 1981, and nobody talks about that. The reason being, he didn't do it on live TV. That's the only reason, I think. And, but, but the fact that Emerson Fittipaldi on live TV refused the milk I'm, it's just such a major thing. It just you 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 bring up the fact, hey, Bobby Unser refused to do it. Well, I don't care. Emerson Fittipaldi. It's just there's nothing you can say to make it any better. Here's how it sounded when Emerson Fittipaldi, who was trying to grow awareness about the citrus industry and orange groves of which he had financial investment in Brazil, by drinking orange juice instead of milk. This is how it sounded. No, I'm not having the milk. Sir. Yeah. Now, there's a first. Emerson, you're not going to drink the milk. Well, I'm going to drink the orange juice. That's my producing, and I, I'm going to have this time orange juice. I produce orange juice. Here is Donald Davidson. When Fittipaldi said, no, uh, you know, I drink orange juice or we produce orange juice or something like that, the crowd just come, came unglued. And I remember I remember my head was down. I was in the booth, in the, in the uh, network broadcast booth, doing some stats, had the headset on, and when I heard that, I mean, it, it was, I, I wouldn't say it was like I was stabbed in the stomach, but I did have that feeling that it just was a, a horrible feel, And uh, but it wasn't just me, it was thousands and thousands of people. I don't know how many were listening, but uh, probably 250, 300,000 or more on the grounds, and there was this instant booing. It wasn't something that developed over a few days or weeks or, or months, it was instant instantaneous and Fittipaldi up to that point I mean I think he realized maybe not immediately that he'd made a horrible error because eventually he did 
agreed to hold the bottle to his lips. But that's only after quite a bit of encouragement from Tony George and Roger Penske and, and others. There were several attempts to get him to do it, but he was pretty adamant that he wasn't going to. And then he very reluctantly uh, held the, uh, the bottle to his lips when his car owner mouthed to him, drink the milk. By the way, I should have pointed out, obviously it was the second win for Fittipaldi. He was also a winner in 1989. In 1985, Bobby Rahal, or excuse me, 86, Bobby Rahal won the Indianapolis 500. He took a sip of Budweiser before drinking the milk, but did drink the milk. Also should point out, to be fair, and I think Mike will agree with me here, not only did Fittipaldi later apologize once he understood the magnitude from the fans' perspective of his action or inaction, but also, it has been my experience, and I think the experience of most that have met Fittipaldi since his retirement, that he is as dear and as kind a former 500 winner as you will find if you have the pleasure of ever meeting Emerson Fittipaldi. Ten years after that, it was time for, of course, the 2003 race. And that one actually involved several challengers that were moving towards the front including a young guy who would ultimately end up winning the race not once but twice. But to begin Dan Weldon's first real introduction to a lot of fans in the 2003 Indy 500 happened when he was going in the wrong direction, literally. Here's what I mean. Castro Nevis can't get much of a run at the exit of turn number two. Down the back straightaway. Sam Hornish Jr. gets all the way down to the grass. Back of the pack is able to save it. Tried to make the move around Weldon. Couldn't get it done. Oh. Now Weldon spins and hits the wall of the truck. Dude. Car gets upside down. Rolls end over end. Still rolling along the wall on the outside of turn four. Oh, my. So Dan Weldon makes contact in three. The car gets airborne. Turns upside down. It's on the roll cage. And, uh, boy, what kind of view do you have of it, Chris? because that was a spectacular incident between three and four. Uh, he is moving in the car. It is sitting upside down, and as he was coming out of the short chute, he was airborne right there in the short chute and then skidded. He never got back on the wheels. He stayed upside down all the way, and he is sitting right now just at the entrance of turn number four, the safety crew there. Of course, Dan Weldon would get out of his car. I remember seeing him afterwards just as a media member and saying the best thing that happened all day was seeing you get out of your car. And he got out relatively unscathed. Weldon, of course, would go on to win the Indianapolis 500 in 2005 and again in 2011. But it was actually Gilles DeFerrin that would take home the victory in 2003. Out of four, one turn to go. It will be three straight for Roger Penske, but not three straight for Castro Nevis. For the second time in three years, Team Penske goes one-two. This time it's Gilda Farron winning the 87th Indianapolis 500-mile race. Mike King on the call along with Chris Denary. It was Mark Janes you heard describing Dan Weldon's accident in 2003 on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway radio network. DeFerrin was able to get the win when Castro Nevis, who was going for three for three in his first three Indianapolis 500s, had to check up a little bit behind A.J. Foyt the fourth. That allowed his teammate Gilles DeFerrin to pounce and get the win. When we come back, we are still, of course, working on the threes, and that includes hearing from one of the favorite drivers in the history of IMS. We'll explain next. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com. 
and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. These powerful race cars attempting to qualify command the crowd's immediate attention. But a glance around the oval also takes in vital stationary equipment, like the track signal lights and official timing clock. These important facilities, working flawlessly, are powered by the same source that starts so many of these race cars. Dependable Willard Batteries, the official battery here at the Indianapolis Speedway. Sam Hanks, director of racing and former 500 winner, puts it this way. Willard's built for the big job it's got to do here at the Speedway. To start those high horsepower engines, you need a battery with some built-in muscle. Willard's got it in spades. I always use Willard batteries, and I haven't been let down yet. Planning a vacation? Remember, your car battery is going to work the whole trip. If it's weak, replace it now. Insist on Willard, the battery the pros depend on. That's how Sid Collins sounded in 1963. You heard him mention Sam Hanks. Hanks had the record for winning the 500 for the first time after the most consecutive starts. It was his 12th year when he won and broke through. The same thing happened 50 years after that commercial. In 2013, Tony Kanaan in start number 12 finally got to victory lane. 197 laps completed at the line. Three wide. Munoz on the outside. Kanaan on the inside. Who will make the pass? Miss stick. It's going to be Kanaan. Jake Query, TK out in front on lap 197 at the speedway. Kanaan was going all or nothing. Restart and he gets all. There's a yellow and it's because of one of the target cars on the south end of the track. Can't tell yet whether it's Scott Dixon or Dario Franchini, but either way a car against the south end of the track and that may mean that tony Kanan may have broken through and won at the indianapolis motor speedway oh my. we'll have to wait and see oh my goodness tony Kanan and carlos munoz they split ryan hunter ray going into turn number one it was an incredible incredible move and look look at tk david he's already in turn number one the pace car if it's going to catch him he's going to have to catch him quick because tk wants this race over with. It is over with. He's led over 3,200 laps, including over 200 in Indianapolis. Chris Denary, he's going to fill that glaring hole in his resume. His countryman and friend Elio Castroneves has won this race three times. The first one is always the sweetest. He's behind the pace car in turn four, Mike King. Here comes Tony Kanan. TK has wanted this race oh so bad. The crowd will come to its feet and will salute the man from Brazil who will finally fulfill fill his dream for Tony Kanaan. The 12th time is the charm at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. The twin checkers way. TK has won the 2013 500. And Tony Kanaan, I, I got the chance to do an interview with him the next year and, and I asked him about his, you know, how love of the Speedway and how he said the track will choose who will win. And I said, did you ever thank the track? And he said, yep. He said, I went up in the stands and I said, thank you. Thank you for choosing me. And it was really special to him. And you could just see how much it means to him. He, of course, had led the race for a record number of consecutive races before finally getting that win. Tony Kanan, by the way, who we had on my morning show, which we will do again tomorrow at 7 o'clock in the morning, not have Kanan on, but do the show, um, is set for a final, perhaps, run at Indianapolis this year with Errol McLaren. Tomorrow night, Voices of the 50s. We'll take a look at them. Mike, thanks so much. This has been Beyond the Bricks.